This is Archive Atlanta, episode 227, The Atlanta Six and Angelo Herndon. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. I'm back. Summer break is over. It was glorious. I did not pick up a microphone for five weeks. I had a great vacation. Um, School's back in session. Life started. It's still 99 degrees. But I am excited to be back. All the stuff I wanted to cover, I'm finally getting to. Have some new ideas that I came up with. And then believe it or not, next month is going to be five years of this podcast. Five years years, which is blowing my mind. I remember being like, yeah, you know, this probably gonna last like a year before I run out of topics. And as I joke all the time, I still haven't even done MARTA or the Olympics or like Coca-Cola, you know, important things in Atlanta's history that most people associate it with. So, you know, maybe I'll be here another five. We'll see. Um, I do want to plan some kind of event. And so I'm trying my best to do that. And I will let you all know um, what I can figure out and how you can make it if you'd like to. So this week, we are talking about the Atlanta Six and Angelo Herndon. And these are stories of communism, specifically in the United States, how it spread during the Great Depression, why it became popular with Southern Black Americans, and how that story ties into Atlanta history and how Atlanta leaders attempted to crush the movement and its activists in any way possible. And speaking of Atlanta, the murder and arrest of activists protesting Cop City has so many parallels to these stories from the 1930s, um, whether you're looking at the crackdown on dissent, um, baseless charges, the battle of the Atlanta way by all means necessary. It was kind of eerie to see these comparisons. And it also has really tragic comparisons to the condition of the Fulton County Jail. Um, so if you've not been kind of reading the news, it's not a central part of this week's story, but I will recommend some further reading for anyone that wants to deep dive into that. So before we get into this week's episode, let's start with a brief primer on American communism. The U.S. Communist Party was founded in Chicago in 1919, and it is deeply rooted in the national labor movement. The first Red Scare began in 1917, and it was a general fear of far-left movements that were taking hold in America. You had the 1917 Russian Revolution, um, you had the Seattle General Strike here in America, you had the Boston Police Strike in Massachusetts, and you had the rise of anarchist bombings. Atlanta actually had its own anarchist bombing in the spring of 1919. A Georgia senator, I think his name was Thomas Hardwick, received a mail bomb, which ended up exploding in his servant's hands, severely injuring her and partially injuring his wife. This was just a really tense time for the entire country. We are coming out of World War I, the influenza epidemic, uh, there's changes in immigration, women's roles in society are changing, and everyone is on edge about the direction that America was headed. By 1928, the U.S. Communist Party formally changed its constitution to call for the right of African-American determination in the South. By 1930, the communists had devoted most of the efforts to organizing the unemployed of all races, forming unions, and championing African-American rights and fighting evictions of farmers and the working poor. They began to recruit disaffected members of the Socialist Party, as well as members of a black socialist group called the African Blood Brotherhood. During the Great Depression in general, many Americans were disillusioned with capitalism and they were attracted to alternative ideologies. Before we get to the Atlanta Six and Herndon, we have to talk about Georgia's insurrection law, as it factors into the story a little bit later. 
The state of Georgia had numerous laws regarding enslaved Africans from its founding as a colony. In the Capital Crimes Act of 1770, insurrection or attempt to incite insurrection by an enslaved person was added to that list. Two years after the 1831 Nat Turner Rebellion, Georgia first passed a law initially drafted to discourage slave rebellions. After the Civil War, it was revised to combat insurrection. Now, we never really use this law, so it gathers dust on the books until 1916, when the city of Atlanta used it as a threat against IBEW organizer William Pollard in retaliation for organizing the streetcar operator strike. It would be revived again in 1930 by Atlanta Solicitor General John Boykin to pursue labor organizers, and these organizers would become to be called the Atlanta Six. On March 2nd, 1930, William Green of the American Federation of Labor came to Atlanta to speak to the crowds at the Paramount Theater. Young white communist activist Mary Dalton was arrested for quote-unquote disturbing the meeting. Just a week later, on March 9th, an integrated meeting of about 100 communists and labor organizers took place at Rutgers Hall, a building that no longer stands at the corner of Piedmont and Auburn Avenues, And so the details of this meeting are sparse, um, mostly because what I'm reading is coming from a police perspective in a white newspaper. But from what I gather is as the meeting is adjourned, um, a tear gas bomb was thrown into the crowd. And there are two police officers there basically kind of watching the meeting as it was happening. And they arrest two young white men, uh, Joe Carr and M.H. Powers. Powers was from Minnesota. Carr was from West Virginia. Uh, One of them was of Russian descent. I cannot remember which one. But both were painted in the press as out-of-town agitators. The May Day celebrations of 1930 were tense around the country as the Communist Party organized rallies, demonstrations, and other forms of action. Atlanta's version was quiet and not well attended, but organizers that were there were calling for a protest to release Carr, Powers, and other quote-unquote class war prisoners. On May 21st, a communist organizer meeting took place in Liberty Hall, a small space over a grocery store on Edgewood Avenue. Atlanta policemen infiltrated the gathering, and they witnessed about 46 people in attendance. All of them were black, with the exception of four white people. After a speech by Gilmer Brady, who is a black man from New York City using an alias, the police broke up the meeting and were met with resistance, which was led by white women. There were six people arrested. Julius and Lizette Claren, Mary Dalton, Anne Burlack, Speaker Gilmer Brady, and Henry Story. Both of those were black men. The rest of the people were white. The Clarence landlord, Mrs. J.E. Andrews, spoke to the police of their great character. They were released and their cases dismissed. The remaining four were facing violations of sections 56 and 58 of the law, inciting insurrection against the state of Georgia, which called for the death penalty. So let me just restate the facts for you here so this really sinks in. Police come to an indoor meeting and arrest people for existing with communist ideology, and now they're facing death. Carr and Powers were indicted on attempting to incite insurrection, and their trial is scheduled for early summer. On May 31st, the grand jury returned bills on Dalton, Burlack, Brady, and Story. Um, the Atlanta Six, as they were, so even though these their arrests happened kind of in different periods of a three-week period, they became known as the Atlanta Six. The Six are held in jail for about six weeks, and by July, three were out on bond, with bond expected for the remaining three. Upon her release, Anne Burlack 
traveled seeking legal representation for the group. Um, Anne was born in Pennsylvania in 1911. She was the eldest child of Ukrainian immigrants. Uh, she dropped out of school at 14 to work in the mills. And after hearing legendary communist labor organizer Mother Bloor, she began organizing herself. She came to Georgia under the National Transport Workers Union to organize workers at the Atlanta Woolen and the Fulton Bag and Cotton Mills. Burlak secured counsel from the International Labor Defense, which was the legal arm of the Communist Party, and with support from the American Civil Liberties Union, um, IDL attorneys employed a variety of legal tactics to postpone their client's trial until late 1932. So although none of them would ever stand trial, uh, formal charges were not dropped for another seven years. Angelo Herndon was born in Ohio in 1913 to a family living in extreme poverty. He lost a younger sibling and then his father, and in an effort to support the rest of his family, he left the state in 1927 to work in the mines of Kentucky. From there, he traveled to Alabama, where he encountered communism while working for the Tennessee Coal, Iron, and Railroad Company in Birmingham. He began organizing under the Unemployment Council of Birmingham, and he was subject to numerous arrests and general police brutality. In 1931, he fled to Atlanta to organize here. And a lot of his work here was campaigning for the communist candidate in the 1932 presidential election. So William Foster was the nominee and James Ford was the vice presidential nominee. And Ford, this is the first time a black person was nominated for office. So this really helped solidify the assumption for Southerners that communism equated equal rights for black people, um, again, especially Southerners. And so Herndon wrote that all of the communist organizing work happening in Atlanta was integrated and that poor white and black Atlantans were both being kept from uh, voting and from the polls by the high poll tax. In 1932, amidst the Great Depression, the city of Atlanta and Fulton County officials were distributing relief payments to the unemployed. I talked about this briefly in the WPA episode, but black families received less than white, among many other inequalities of the Great Depression. Um, but in that year, both the city and the county decide to drop 23,000 white and black families from the relief rolls, claiming that there was no more money to give out. So the communist-led unemployment council met and they wrote demands. They wanted a release of all arrested on vagrancy laws. They wanted each unemployed worker with a family to get $4 a week. Um, and if you had more children, you'd get more money. They wanted no discrimination in relief payments. They wanted the city to provide coal, shoes, clothing, and car fare to get children to schools. Um, and they wrote these all in these pamphlets. So they had 10,000 leaflets printed and distributed, and they did a courthouse demonstration plan. The morning of June 30th, 1932, almost a thousand unemployed workers, half of which were white and half were black, filled the courthouse square and lined up shoulder to shoulder. With city and county legislators effectively scared straight, they immediately held a special session the next day and county commissioners approved a $6,000 emergency relief appropriation. This integrated, multiracial coalition was frightening to local politicians, and authorities began a close watch on what they considered local radicals who were rumored to have organized the protest. The mailer had been sent from Box 339 from Atlanta, Georgia. And so after less than two weeks of surveillance, police arrested Angelo Herndon on July 11th as he collected his mail from that mailbox in a downtown post office. 
Police also raided his home on Hubbard Street and claimed to find a basket of quote-unquote red literature. Atlanta police charged Herndon with insurrection, but instead of using the date of the protest, which was June 30th, they used July 16th, a date when Herndon was already sitting inside the city jail. Alonzo was not permitted to have visitors for 11 days, um, and if you read his autobiography, he chronicles this time in the city jail and then later in the Fulton County Jail in horrific detail. It involves rotting food, witnessing the death of a fellow prisoner, uh, and much more. And again, disturbingly not much different from the current news that you're reading about the jail in today's world. Herndon's team secured the defense of local attorney H.A. Allen, who was a white man that Angelo seemed like the right fit until he expressed that he would not bring up the lack of black men on the jury. So in his autobiography, Herndon says he kind of at that moment, he knew Allen wasn't progressive. Um, He ended up backing out of the case himself, Allen himself, but he kept the retainer. In later years, Allen would defend the Grand Wizard of the KKK. So, you know, maybe Herndon's gut feelings weren't that far off after all. Out of money and out of options, Herndon was visited in jail by two black Atlanta attorneys, Benjamin Davis Jr. and John H. Greer, who offered to defend him pro bono. Ben Davis had moved to Atlanta in 1909 as a six-year-old, where his father, Ben Davis Sr., became a political leader and established the Atlanta Independent newspaper. Davis Jr. attended the Morehouse College High School program, and then he later went to Harvard. He worked briefly as a journalist before establishing his law practice in the same year as Herndon's trial. So immediately, these two men write a writ of habeas corpus, claiming that the charges against Angelo Herndon were vague, as well as the fact that no black men were on the jury, ensuring no chance of a fair trial. The writ was immediately denied and Herndon sent back to jail. But he did not sit quietly. He wrote letters to every single publication across the United States. Uh, He was eventually published in The Liberator in October of 1932. um, But he really developed this immense fan base. People from across the U.S. sent money, fruit, and other items to the jail cell almost daily. The trial began January 16th, 1933. And once again, Herndon's biography covers this in details. There's transcripts of his time on the stand, um, Davis's closing remarks, verdict documents. I'll put a link. I'll talk about this later. You can read it all. Um, Davis did highlight that Emory and Atlanta libraries had the exact same, quote unquote, red literature that they found in Angelo's home. After just two days of court and two hours of deliberation, the jury found Herndon guilty. Although the prosecution had sought the death penalty, the jury recommended leniency, which they thought was 18 to 20 years on the chain gang. Attorney Benjamin Davis was so moved during this trial, he converted to communism and he moved to Harlem in 1935 to serve as the editor of a communist newspaper. The international labor defense lawyers kind of took over at this point. They filed um, a new trial. Angelo's bail was denied. They also began a national campaign to make the country aware of Herndon's plight and make him a symbol of Southern and capitalist injustice. So during this time, while he's in the Fulton County Jail, Herndon nearly dies of starvation and horrific conditions. It's really only because of this national press, again, he's still writing letters about his conditions, that he got any kind of care while incarcerated. 
In May of 1934, his appealed conviction was upheld by the Georgia Supreme Court and Atlanta police cracked down on protests and or suspected communists in the city. There was a raid at the Dorch Building on Auburn Avenue where they received a tip that communist publications were being printed and DeKalb police arrested an Emory physics professor for suspected communist literature. In August of 1934, Herndon was finally released from prison. In May of 1935, the U.S. Supreme Court sent the case back to lower courts. So in October of 1935, um, the U.S. Supreme Court denied rehearing and put Herndon back in a jail cell. Now this time, national and international fame and support. Again, it's only been growing as he's in jail. Um, in December of 1935, Atlanta Judge Hugh Dorsey reversed Herndon's conviction. And then in April 1936, the Georgia Supreme Court overturns Dorsey's decision and upholds his conviction once again. Finally, in April of 1937, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to four that the law Angelo Herndon was tried under was too vague. Contrary to popular misconception, this did not overturn Georgia's insurrection law um, or make it go away. It really was just specifically about Herndon's case. Um, it didn't legally stick. In 1938, he married Joyce Chellis, who was a stenographer from Alabama, and he really disappears from the public sphere. Um, he published a very short-lived Negro Quarterly, it was called, with Ralph Ellison. And then by the time of the Cold War, the version of U.S. communism that he was seeing, he wasn't really into it, and so he quits the party. In 1937, he published Let Me Live, the first autobiography published by a black political prisoner in the United States. This is what I've been talking about in the episode. I read it um, for, for this episode's research. It's really an important read, and um, I really highly recommend it. Again, I'm going to put it in the link in the show notes for anybody that'd like to purchase it. So there you have it. The story of the Atlanta Six, Ann Burlack, Mary Dalton, Gilmer Brady, a.k.a. Herbert Newton, Henry Story, M.H. Powers, and Joe Carr, and the story of Angela Herndon. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review or listen to podcasts. Um, there's also a Patreon link in the show notes if you'd like to support the work. I hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week.